God, you are so good, and we, we treasure your kindness towards us. This good news that Isaiah spoke of, heralding that God himself would become a man born to a virgin Mary in the city of David in Bethlehem, and that this man would grow to minister to his people, that he um, would be called uh, Holy God, that he would be our wonderful counselor, that he would be our Prince of Peace, and that ultimately he would accomplish all that through his crucifixion and death and resurrection. We thank you that that's the, the true story of Christmas, the story that we have been brought into by grace. Lord, as we look at the end of Genesis here today, I pray that we would be just moved to love you and trust you more. Um, I pray that we wouldn't be so concerned with our actions and our response that for a morning, Lord, at church, we would just revel in who our God is and what he has done. And so would you come, Spirit, and minister to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I want you to open your Bible with me to Genesis 49. So we won't meet for church next Sunday. The Sunday after that is New Year's Day. We will meet for church, um, t- same time, and we'll actually be finishing Genesis. We'll be dealing with Genesis chapter 50, and Genesis will be over. After that, we're going to do uh, one Sunday, just kind of reorienting our church for the new year. And then we're going to go through the entire book of Jude in one Sunday. Can you believe it? Jude is very short. It's only one chapter. So if you're like, whoa, we've never done it that quickly, uh, we'll go through Jude. And then we're going to move into to First Peter. So I'm excited about where we're headed in the new year. But for now, open your Bible with me to Genesis 49. Jacob, who we have been following, has been one of the main characters in the book of Genesis for 24 chapters now. Isn't that crazy? I mean, Genesis is a long book, 50 chapters total, but the life of Jacob weaves its way through half of this book. Genesis 25 is where it starts, and we'll find reference to him even in Genesis chapter 50, even though this chapter will record his death. But before we find the record of his death, Jacob gives us what I would call is a prophecy about his 12 sons. So let's read this chapter together. And if you're a guest with us and you don't have a Bible, we have some on our table back there. We would love for you to grab one. It says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. 
Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be its Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant of forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's, Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel." By, by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who, set apart, who was set apart from his brothers." Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people." So I spent many hours this week trying to make sense of most of this chapter with very little success. Do you ever read your Bible and wonder, what in the world does this mean? Uh, there are a few things that I can say generally about this blessing, some things that I discovered and realized, but uh, after a lot of careful thought and scouring Scripture and reading some good commentaries, I have to confess that I'm not certain what much of this means. I can see some 
references back to things that we've read in Genesis, and I can see some hints at things that I know come later in the Bible, but I don't know exactly how all of these prophetic words are fulfilled as Jacob speaks this prophecy over his sons. I think a lot of it has to do with the tribal land allotments that Israel will receive when they finally enter into the promised land um, in the book of Joshua. What I do know for certain, though, is that in these final moments of his life, Jacob does speak prophecy over his sons. And he knows that he's speaking prophecy because in verse 1 he says, I will tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. And so here at the end of his life, this man that has been with us for half of the book of Genesis enters into this role as a kind of prophet. And I think it seems appropriate that that would be the case because do you remember way back when we first met Jacob, way back in Genesis chapter 25, how did his life begin? It began with God himself speaking a prophecy over this man, saying that even though he was the younger brother, he would be the chosen and blessed son, the one through whom the promise to Abraham would continue. He would be greater than his older brother. And now God uses this man at the end of his life as a prophet to speak about things that are to come. Now there's one section here that I think I can make a whole lot of sense out of, and it's the prophecy concerning Judah that we find in verses 8 through 12, and that's where I really want to bring your attention to. One of the things that we find as we read the Old Testament is a phenomenon called typology. Typology. When we interpret the Old Testament through what we know and understand from the New Testament, we begin to see some things play out in the Old Testament that become clear, an illustration in the Old Testament for what is to come finally in the New Testament. Maybe you can think about these things as like a car prototype, okay? Um, before a car manufacturer actually puts the car into the assembly line to build it, they make a mock-up of it. They make a model of it. Maybe it begins with sketches and then becomes a 3D model and then maybe something more advanced than that finally in some shop. The point is they have a final product in mind and they create something that will help them kind of move that direction. Well, that's a little bit like the types we find in the Old Testament. God gives us illustrations throughout the Old Testament that will find a final, beautiful, perfect fulfillment eventually in the New Testament, something much greater that God intends. Now, these types are historical. They're people or events or things that actually happened, but they symbolize for us something greater that's yet to come. So let me give you a simple biblical example of this so you're not like thinking of car prototypes anymore. The Passover. This is an excellent example of a type. Israel, God's people, is commanded to take a sacrificial lamb and to slaughter it and cover the door of the house with the blood of the lamb so that when God sends his judgment over Egypt... The blood of the lamb covers his people 
and spares them from the consequence, death. The image of the lamb and the blood is a very obvious type. It points us to Jesus, who Scripture tells us is the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed to save us from the consequence of our sin. Now, there's lots of stuff like this in the Old Testament, and if you're curious to learn more, go read the book of Hebrews. Hebrews deals with lots of these different types. But the prophecy here about Judah is a really good example of a type in the Old Testament. I would tell you it is typological. Which is to say that as Jacob speaks to Judah here, we know from the fullness of the story that there's something so much greater that God is doing here. And because you attend Maricopa Springs, you know where I'm going with this. Judah is a type that points us to Jesus. And I'm not just guessing, I'm not just making that up. Maybe you're familiar with the verse from Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, that speaks of Jesus and says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. So what I want to communicate to you this morning is that as Joseph speaks this prophecy over his son Judah, what he is really doing is foreseeing Christ. Now maybe he doesn't know that But that's what the Bible is ultimately pointing to in this prophecy. And this is really amazing because Genesis is an incredibly old book. I mean, it was written probably something like 1500 BC. And in this moment, it's recording an event that happened even before that. And the book opens at its beginning in chapter 3 with a different prophecy. Maybe you can remember all the way back to that where God says when Adam and Eve sin that there will be a descendant of the woman, Eve, who will crush the head of the serpent. That's a prophecy about Jesus. That's how the book essentially begins, chapter 3. And now we get to chapter 49 and we've got another prophecy A prophecy at the closing of this book about Jesus, who is a ruling king, who will rule with a scepter and will have tribute and obedience. So what I want to do this morning is take a look at these verses about Judah in particular and think forward to how they point us to Christ. Jesus, who is better than Judah. And what I expect from you this morning is not that you'll leave here with some point of application, something that you need to do. I think it's appropriate to do that at church, to think about how does this apply, but this isn't one of those sermons. I just want you to listen, and I want you to experience a sense of awe and experience a sense of joy that Jesus is the Lion of Judah that he is your God and your king and your savior, that he came because he loves you. He came to be a sacrifice for you. So my desire for you this morning would be that you would just worship and revel and grow in your trust and confidence in him. So let's begin in verse 8 where Joseph tells us that Judah's brothers shall praise him. Now, Joseph might be thinking of some event that happens in the future where literally Joseph's brothers offer up some kind of thanksgiving on his behalf. 
Um, but we don't necessarily see that in the text. But the fact is that Judah's brothers already have a reason for which to praise him. We saw it back in chapter 43. Do you remember that Jacob's family was slowly starving to death in the land of Canaan, which would be eventually the promised land? And Jacob knew that his sons could return to Egypt and get food for themselves, but they could only go under the condition that they take with them his favored son Benjamin, and Jacob was unwilling to let that happen. And it was Judah who interceded on behalf of his brothers, who went to Jacob the father, pleading with him to entrust Benjamin over to his care so that they might go down to Egypt and get food and be spared from death. Now, why was it Judah who interceded? Judah was not the oldest son. Judah had no preeminence like we hear about Reuben here. Why wasn't it Reuben or Simeon or Levi? Well, again, remember back to the story. We even saw hints of this in our text in Genesis 49. Each of these older boys had done some evil in the sight of their father. And Genesis 49 records some of that. And so they are removed from the picture as possibilities when it comes to interceding for the family. Judah instead becomes worthy of praise He becomes a type of Christ because he is the righteous son who intercedes and stands before the father to rescue his brothers. And I would hope that you would see that that's the story of Christ and you, Christ and us. We are transgressors like Judah's brothers, Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Because of our sin, we have no grounds to go before God the Father and petition that he would show us kindness. But Christ, our brother, goes to the Father on our behalf, and he doesn't say to the Father, Father, look at their good works. Look at these people. See how wonderful they are. No, he says, Father, look at my nail-pierced hands. Look at my crucified body. Look at what I have done and show them kindness. And because of Christ's intercession then, God is moved from wrath towards us for our sin to tenderness, to love. But the praise of Judah far exceeds, or I'm sorry, the praise of Jesus far exceeds the praise that Judah might be worthy of because Christ didn't just intercede for you on one occasion. He interceded for you on the cross, that is true, but his intercession did not stop there. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 tells us that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Which means that even now, Christ Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in heaven pleading to God on your behalf. Do you ever feel like you wish that there was somebody who would come alongside of you? Do you ever feel like you wish that there was somebody who would be an advocate for you? 
Do you understand what I'm explaining when I say that Christ Jesus, even now, is at the right hand of the Father, always making intercession for you? Forget guardian angels, my friends. You have the Son of God right this moment speaking your name to God the Father, advocating for you that God would continue to bless you with his love and guard you in his grace and care for you in his tenderness. You know, Christmas is, the Christmas season is, is a time to rejoice and celebrate, but I know that it's also a time where often the pain of life feels particularly poignant. Do you ever feel burdened by the circumstances of your life? I mean, today, today, right now, do things appear difficult? Is your heart heavy or weary? Do you feel the weight of despair or sorrow or loneliness or fear? Or maybe you're dealing with some incessant sin issue in your life and you're just discouraged because you feel like you can't conquer it, that it will surely defeat you? Well, I would hope that you would find comfort in this beautiful truth, that right now, Jesus is with God our Father in heaven, speaking your name, advocating for you, pleading for you, praying for you, making provision for you. And the most beautiful part about all of it is that he will succeed because he is the Son of God, because he is God's beloved. God will never turn away his beloved Son, Jesus. And Jesus right now is advocating for you. And since Jesus is your advocate, God will supply whatever Jesus knows that you need. Be comforted in that. Christ intercedes for you, and he cannot fail. Next, we're told in verse 8 that Judah's brothers shall bow down before him. This is another thing that shows up in this prophecy that I don't think that we see fulfilled in the text of Scripture anywhere as far as I'm aware. I don't think we can find it in the biblical text, but it should happen. Once again, because it was Judah's initiative that rescued his family from famine. And that work made him, I think, honor of some, or worthy of some honor and praise from his brothers. But of course, the honor that Christ deserves is far greater. We who are the children of God will bow down to Jesus... On the final day of our salvation, we will give Christ all the glory and praise. Jesus is called our brother, that's true, but he's also our Savior and our Lord. And so at the end of all things, we will cast down before him our crowns at the feet of the one who is worthy of all honor and praise. Whatever honor or glory is rightly ours, whatever reward or praise that we may have come to be worthy of, when we stand before Christ on that day, we will see his greater glory and we will gladly take that honor and praise and present it to him. And we will also feel like what a small gift this is to one who is so great. 
But the honor of Christ that is foretold in this prophecy is greater still than the honor that you and I alone will give him because it foresees that at the end of all things, even the enemies of Christ will give him honor. Verse 8 says, For his hand shall be on the neck of his enemies. Again, what I'm saying is that this will be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this means that We who choose to honor him will honor him, but even those who now rebel against him will still honor him. In the end, all those who are lovers of self and lovers of money and proud and arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderers, God-haters, In the end of all things, even those people will bow before Christ to give him honor. And they will cry out, not curses like they do now. They will cry out that he is lovely, that he is just, that he is good and right and true. And they will give him glory and they will weep and wail that his hand is upon their neck. And they never saw fit to honor him the way that they should have. And we're told in verse 9 that Judah is powerful like a lion. Uh, I have a whole new understanding of this imagery. When I was in Kenya a few weeks back at the end of our three conferences, we did a short little safari. And um, we... I'm sure that you've seen lions, you know, behind glass in a zoo... Uh, but I tell you that I have now experienced being like 10 feet away. Actually, at the closest, I was probably like two feet away from this lion in the wild. No fence or obstruction between me and that animal, and it was terrifying. So when we first pulled up, he looked up at us. I've got a picture of that as well. And, you know, I might be projecting, but he looked hungry. (laughs) But that is an animal with frightening, raw power. And the question in verse 9, you can see it there, is who dares rouse him? Now, I know that my goofy face doesn't show it, but I confess that when our driver pulled the Jeep up to this lion... And he looked up at the sound of the car and there was literally nothing between me and that animal except 10 feet of grass. I was afraid. And we would go on throughout the safari to see 15 or 16 different lions. And you know what is fascinating? Something that just never stood out to me seeing lions in the zoo. They just didn't care about anything. Like, here were these people in these Jeeps driving around within a couple of feet, like starting up an engine while the lion is sleeping, and it just didn't even care. Right after this, it put its head back down and went to sleep. And there's a reason why lions are called the king of the jungle. They have no fears. They have no worries. They have no concerns. And Jesus is called the lion of Judah because there's no better imagery from the animal kingdom to describe the raw power and absolute confidence that Jesus has. 
But Jesus doesn't use that power as the Lion of Judah to threaten or devour those who belong to him. His power is over them to protect them and safeguard them. His power displayed towards them is love. It's mercy. Remember what Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And honestly, as I think back to this lion sleeping in the bushes and then later walking along beside the Jeep as we kind of followed him, the thing that most impresses me is how utterly carefree this animal was. In fact, our driver, Steve, told us that the male lions sleep 22 hours a day. Sounds nice. (laughs) They just rest. Does that sound nice to you? Especially this time of year where it's cold and dark when you wake up at like 9 in the morning. To just rest and be carefree to cease from anxiety or fear, to have no problems, to have a worry-free philosophy. (laughs) Doesn't that sound kind of nice? Jesus, the Lion of Judah, said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Doesn't that sound wonderful? And the power of Jesus is so great that even the one natural predator of man could not overcome his power. Right? See, the lion actually does have a predator. It would be you. It would be me. It would be hunters interested in putting an awesome mount up on their wall. But Jesus was so powerful that he overcame the one natural predator of man, which is death itself. Death was unable to devour him. Even the darkness of the grave could not diminish his power or place a burden upon him. And if your soul is a chaotic mess this morning, then turn to the powerful one. Turn to the Lion of Judah. Turn to the one who said, come to me and I'll give you rest for your soul. Be encouraged that he's near. Let your soul rest in his power. You can take the picture down now. Thank you. Next, I want to turn your attention to verse 10 that says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is a symbol of authority. It reminds us of the sovereignty of God. The prophecy that uh, Jacob spoke over his son Judah, again, it ultimately finds its fulfillment in Christ. And so that's why we find in Revelation chapter 19 a picture of Jesus where he rules the, the nations with a rod of iron. Now that is not some plumber's pipe that's in Jesus' hand, the rod of iron. It is the scepter of a king. The scepter of Judah belongs to Jesus, and it's a symbol of his uncontested authority. Now, if you pay attention to politics at all, which you probably just shouldn't, but if you do, then maybe you've noticed an increasing phenomenon. It's been going on for a couple of decades, and it's this. A president signs an executive order declaring this is how things will be, 
And within 24 hours, a judge blocks it because somebody sues and says, you can't do that. The president of the United States of America has never carried a scepter because his authority is always questioned. And our system of government was intentionally designed so that the people with power would have no power. That's how it's supposed to work. But Jesus, the Lion of Judah, has uncontested authority, unquestioned authority, unchecked authority. There is no system of checks and balances for the one who holds the rod of iron, the scepter. He says to the mountains, move, and they obey. He says to the sun, stand still, and it does. He says to the dead in the tomb, rise, and they walk. He whispers over nations, crumble, and they fall. He speaks to arrogant kings and says, die, and they die. And he declares over history, bend to my will, and it does. And he says to you, obey my commands. Follow me. Trust me. Now, if mountains fall at his direction and nations crumble at his whisper and the dead live at his order, what do you do at his command? Will you deny this king his sovereign right over your heart and your life? Do you try to wrench the scepter of the Lion of Judah from its jaws? Do you think that's the kind of authority that you have? Verse 10 foretells just how far Christ's uncontested authority actually goes. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The authority of Jesus will be obeyed. His words will be done. That's actually not in question. He will either be obeyed willingly by those who've come to see that he is a gentle lamb in addition to a roaring lion. He will be willingly obeyed by those who trust him and submit their hearts because they know he's good, because they see that his commands are the words of life. Or this king will be obeyed as he speaks judgment over those who refuse to turn and repent, and they are forever placed under the punishment of his wrath. But he will be obeyed. There's no other option. The authority of Jesus is supreme over all things. It is supreme even over the rebellious human heart. That's actually going to take us back one tiny step where it talks about tribute in the middle of verse 10. Now, I'm not entirely sure what kind of tribute Jacob's son Judah might have been worthy of, but I do know the prophetic tribute that Jesus deserves. Remember the scene in Matthew chapter 22 where the Pharisees come to Jesus and they try to trick him and they say, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And you remember what Jesus says? 
He says, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God the things that belong to God. Now, if the prophecy of Judah here ultimately points to Jesus, then we can ask this question. What tribute does Jesus deserve? And I would say that the answer is the human heart. More specifically, the tribute that Jesus deserves is your heart, willingly surrendered to him. Which is to say that what Jesus deserves from you is everything, all that you are, all that you have. Don't you see, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, that there's only one corner of all of creation that God has made that does not submit to him in his authority. And that's you. That's your heart. The one place in all of creation where the will of God is yet to be done is in your heart, my heart. And that ultimately is the tribute that must come to Jesus, the Lion of Judah. God does not want your Sunday morning worship. He doesn't want you to just attend church. He doesn't want your daily devotional time. He's not out for your pocketbook, your wallet, your bank account. He doesn't even want your good behavior or your moralistic legalism. He wants the tribute that belongs to him and him alone which is all of you, your heart. And you can give it to him. And the reason is because you know that he's good. You know what he will do with it. You know that he will tenderly care for it under the shadow of his love and his mercy. You have nothing to be afraid of. And he's worthy of having your heart as tribute because the price that he paid to purchase it Now, I confess that I can only guess as to what the first half of verse 11 means, but I definitely know what Jacob's prophecy is pointing to in the second half. Judah has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now, the wording is not exactly like it's stated in other places, but the imagery is clear, and if you spend any time in Scripture, then maybe you can see what this is pointing to. In Revelation chapter 19, as I already mentioned, we're given a picture of Jesus, and we are told he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And at the Last Supper, Jesus said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So wine becomes a symbol of blood, like typology. Wine that comes from the crushing of grapes. Blood that poured forth from Jesus when he was crushed by God. And why did God crush him? It was because of God's wrath towards sin. See, Revelation tells us that at the end of history, Jesus will tread the winepress of the wrath of God. That is, Jesus himself will crush to nothing the hearts of those who refused his blood as a covering for their sin, and their blood will be required as a result. It's a violent 
gruesome, terrible piece of imagery, isn't it? It's like a lion tearing its prey apart. It's fearsome, bloody, grisly. Grisly like a man being crucified. And that's exactly the point. The image that we are given of Jesus treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God is violent and terrible because sin is violent and terrible. That's why Jesus had to be crucified, to give his life, to shed his blood, to be crushed under the wrath of God so that we might be spared the violence that we deserve for the violence we do in sin. Jesus then, as Jacob prophesies, like he speaks over Judah, was always clothed in white, the symbol of purity, and yet he willingly washed his garments in the wine of God's wrath, spilling his own blood so that you could be set free from your slavery to sin. And because he is the Lion of Judah, he will tear to pieces all of those who reject the provision that he has made his gift of grace. And so either Christ is crushed for you and his blood runs and covers you, or Jesus will crush you. But for all who turn and repent, our place is to offer up the tribute that he deserves. Our hearts in praise and worship, all of the honor that he deserves, all of who we are, all of the praise and all of the glory for all eternity because Christ our Savior laid down his life to be slain and by his blood he ransomed us his people. And so in response, joyfully, joyfully, we give to Jesus our hearts as tribute for the work that he has done to redeem us out of the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Our God is a king and a servant. Our God is mighty and humble. Our Lord is sovereign and kind. In love, he suffered wrath. So let him have our praise and our tribute. Let's pray. Hail, hail, Lion of Judah, how wonderful you are. Jesus, you deserve all tribute, all praise, all obedience, all honor, all glory. Because you willingly placed yourself into the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. And you bore that burden on our behalf. And you rose, conquering death. And you now stand beside your Father, always making intercession for us. Lord, would you give us rest and would you yoke our hearts to you that our burden would be easy and light? Lord, would you help us to give our hearts over in obedience that you might have the honor that you deserve from our lives? And we praise you that you are this God the Lion of Judah, the one who holds the scepter, the one to whom belongs the obedience of the nations. God, may our hearts rest in that, in Christ's name. Amen.